The last few weeks, uh, Pastor John has been leading us through our study of 1 John and meditating on what it means that God is light and how that is so central to the gospel and how light exposes sin. Light, light brings forth the evil, the things that are hidden. This morning, I want to take a detour to the Old Testament and we'll see this very same truth being demonstrated in the nation of Judah during their final years. This morning, I want to consider the book of Ezekiel, chapter 8. Now, if you know anything about Ezekiel, it's probably the vivid and, quite frankly, scary depictions of angels. This is the book where Ezekiel sees visions of angelic beings, and he's terrified, and he gives very wild accounts of what they look like, and he tries to grapple with his language to explain them. And oftentimes, when people go to Ezekiel, they go to look at these, these passages and ask the question, what do angels really look like? Well, tucked in between these passages is chapter 8. And in chapter 8, God brings judgment on the nation of Judah. He, he reveals their sins to them. And so that's what will be this morning. You see, Ezekiel is writing and prophesying the very end of the nation of Judah. There's been a series of sinful kings who've led the people into idolatry and disobedience. And God has raised up the Assyrian Empire to attack Jerusalem and to begin to take prisoners. There are now refugees, their city is collapsing, their, their society is slowly crumbling apart. Many of the leaders of Judah have been taken captive in these wars with Assyria. But in the city of Jerusalem, they're still functional, inhabited, and this is when the prophet now begins to write. You see, Judah is characterized as a city who still claims to be God's people. They're still, you know, we're Jews, we worship the God of Abraham, we're Yahweh's people. So they claim to be God's people. And yet, as we'll see from this text, their society is marked by an obsession of worshiping every god they can find, every cult they can join. And so there's this claiming to be a Christian, and yet, or claiming to be a follower of God, but at the same time, a, a, a disease, an underlying dis, dis, disgust of following false idols. And so Ezekiel begins to write, now, this text is going to repeatedly use one of my favorite words in the English language, abomination. You see, I love this word because of how flavorful it is, how, how descriptive it is. Everybody in this room knows what hate means, right? To say, I hate something. And maybe you know some of the more stronger versions of hate. I loathe that. I abhor that. I can't stand that. We have lots of words to describe how much we don't like something. We disgust. We despise. But to abominate is to go even a step further. To abominate is to say, I hate, I find so much disgust in this thing that I withdraw my presence. I will not be in the same room. I will not be around that anymore. Abomination requ requires a separation. It says, unless there is a fundamental change, unless there's a savior, I cannot be around sin. I cannot be in the presence. So in this chapter, we're going to see God calling out abominations. God is saying, these are things that I hate and I cannot tolerate. These are the reasons why I have separated myself from the nation of Judah. These are the reasons why I have taken up my presence from the temple. These are what the reasons why I am, I am leaving my blessing and I am coming in judgment. And so when we see these things, these are things that we should mark, we should note. So follow along as I read Ezekiel 8. And there are four abominations. See if you can catch all of them. So listen for the four abominations. Ezekiel 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, 
as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a thorn that had the appearance of a man. Behold, what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put on the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. There was a seat of all the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. And he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted up my eyes towards the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that are committed there. And I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and loathsome beast and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 17 men of the, of the elders of the house of Israel with Jezanah, the son of Shepham, standing there among them. Each had a censer in his hand and smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there we sat women weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Have you, you will still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there was about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their face towards the east, worshiping the sun towards the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the ab abominations that they commit here? They should fill the land with violence and provoke me to such further to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eyes will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. My thesis this morning is that secret sin separates us from God. Secret sin separates us from God. I want to take a look first at verses 1 through 4, the beginning of the giving of the visions. And then one by one, we'll go through the four abominations. Did you catch all of them? There's the abomination of the king, the abomination of men, the abomination of women, and the abomination of the priests. So we'll go through each of the abominations. And then finally, I want to consider the consequences of what these abominations have done and how this applies to our own lives and our relationship with God. Look with me first at verses 1 through 4. Our passage begins with Ezekiel sitting down with the elders. Now, elders doesn't necessarily mean old men. This means the men of the town, esteemed men. So these would be your your, your uh, landowners, your job creators, your businessmen, men of stature, your chamber of commerce people. These are, these are people of some status. And as in all times of history, these are the kind of men who like to get together and have business meetings and business dinners and talk about their trade. And so they've invited Ezekiel. They've invited the prophet, come with us, prophet of God. Come eat with us and you know, do, do business with us and you know, talk shop. 
And so Ezekiel has gone to this dinner. And in God appears, sends an appearance to him. And notice how God appears, how his hand appears to him. There's three words here. There's the word, there's a word for, for fire, for brightness, and gleaming metal. Three words all talking about light. God is saying, my light is here, and I'm going to reveal something. And he grabs him by his hair and pulls him up. Now, you may have been in a business meeting and wished that God would grab you by the hair and take you out of there, and you'd be anywhere but the business meeting. But imagine, for Ezekiel, it really happened. He's sitting in this business meeting. It's going on, and the men are all talking. And God grabs him by the hair and pulls him out of the business meeting and says, it's time to leave the meeting. I need to show you something about these men and about the city that you're in. And so he's yanked out of this meeting. He sees the brightness of God, the light of God. And God's light is going to reveal something important to him. He's going to reveal what these, what these godly men are actually like. And so we see God as light, just as in 1 John, pulling him out to show him what's going to happen. And these two repeating phases, do you see, and you will see more abominations. God's light is attached to how he shows us, how he reveals, how we see. So he wants us to see something, and he wants us to recognize these abominations. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're driving down the highway, and you see an 18-wheeler, you know, a large, big truck. That's what my daughters always chant when we're driving, you know, big truck on the road. So this big truck is going down the road. Now, Hopefully, when you're driving near an 18-wheeler or a big truck, you drive a little bit carefully. Because if you get into a wreck with an 18-wheeler, you're going to have a lot worse time than he is. But if there's a little triangle sign on the back of that 18-wheeler, and it says flammable, it says corrosive, radioactive, you know for a fact that if you get into a wreck with that truck, not only are you likely to die, but it's going to be a very, very bad death. And so the only logical course of action is to say, oh, that is a very dangerous truck. I'm going to back it up. You know, the whole two-second follow rule. Maybe five seconds is good for this truck. I'm, going to be, I'm not going to pass that truck on a curve. I'm going to give that truck some space because that truck is, is dangerous to my, to my life. And so when God is saying, look at these abominations, he's putting up a warning sign and saying, the sins you will see here are very dangerous. These are things to avoid at all costs to back up, to give a wide berth. These are sins you are not to play with. So let us begin to look at the abominations. First abomination is in verses 3 through 6. The image of jealousy. First abomination is the image of jealousy. Now, we're given the location of the image. We're told exactly where it's positioned, which way it's facing, but we're not given a description of what it actually is or what it looks like, at least not in this passage. Thankfully, 2 Kings sheds a lot of light on what this is. In 2 Kings 16, King Ahaz goes on a trip to visit the Assyrians and to go to Damascus to meet with them. Uh, listen as I read 2 Kings 16, 10 through 14. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was there at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar in its pattern, exact to all details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that the king Ahaz had sent him from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. When the king from Damascus, the king, viewed the altar, then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it. 
And he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured out his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offering on that altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the side of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. Here, the north, it's the same location. Now, you, you hear the jealousy. Ahaz goes to Damascus, and he's jealous of how cool they're. They have a really nice-looking altar. I like that altar better than our old bronze one. And so he sins, and in his jealousy, he builds this false altar. And he moves God's altar to the north, to the side. And then, instead of having the priests conducting the sacrifices, he's doing them himself. His jealousy has caused him to move God's, God's altar and to make God jealous for his worship. So this, 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 this image of jealousy is false man-centered worship. It's him building an altar in the style of the Assyrians to appease the Assyrians, to, uh, to appease his own sense and his own taste. He likes their way of doing worship better than God's way of doing worship. And this brings us to our first application. Man-centered religion offends God and cannot be worshipful by definition. God cannot be worshipped by man-centered or man-inspired religion. God is not to be worshipped by the, the ingenuity of men. He's not to be worshipped by the Assyrian model that, that seems fat, flashier or fancier or more fun or more free. And, and the really sad piece of this altar is that while one or two good kings will try to tear it down, it keeps getting rebuilt. And both King Ahaz and later Manasseh, a few kings later, will sacrifice their own son on this altar that they built. So this altar is used to worship God in a perverted way, but it's also used to worship foreign gods, and it's, it's to carry out human sacrifice. So this, this image of jealousy is perverted. Think about what the altar was supposed to represent. It was supposed to be a picture of God covering his people's sins, a picture and a reminder of the coming Savior. It was supposed to be a proclamation of the gospel, and instead, this altar has become a place where children are sacrificed and a mockery is made. The image of God is destroyed. It, it, it twists the gospel on its head and preaches, preaches false truth. And, and this, is, this is so horribly evil to see. And so we have to ask the question then, you know, where do we want to twist worship the way that they twisted worship? You know, what is it that, that we want? Where is our preferences in the way that we bring to the worship service? Swapping out the altar was a serious offense. Changing the method of worship was a serious offense to God. And, and this is why it's so critical that a church cannot take its cues from the world around it. Obviously, this doesn't mean we're Luddites. This doesn't mean we, we can't ever have technology. I'm grateful we have air conditioning. I'm thankful for our new sound system. You know, praise God that that's going to help us and enable us to worship a little better. But in terms of our method, our message, the, the way that we conduct a worship service, that can't change based on what's popular in the world. So our church is a, should be a place that has a bit of a timelessness to it, where the Word of God is read and pray, preached, where, where psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are sung and tested to, to make sure that they capture the truth and help our hearts to draw near to the Lord. Prayer is frequent and fervent. We're not here to entertain or to keep up with what's modern. We're here to sing and engage with eternal things of our Lord. As individuals, we should ask ourselves, what preferences does our ability to worship God depend on? So, can you worship God when you don't particularly like that hymn or that psalm? Can, can you worship God when you've had a rough week, 
When your prayers are not answered, are you still able to worship God and have joy in your heart? When you've had a bad week or, a str- uh, or you've been struggling with something, when it, when it feels hard to focus. If your friends are not here this morning, is it harder to worship when your friends aren't surrounding you? And so let us ask questions of why are we coming to worship? What is, what is driving our worship? Is our, is our desire to worship God or to meet our own preferences? And so we're called to worship God in the way that he prescribes and, and to not erect an image of jealousy and to make God jealous for our worship because we're worshiping something else in the place where we're supposed to worship God. There's, of course, many more questions we could ask in this line of reasoning, but I'd encourage you to always ask, what is it that you are holding dear? What is it that you are actually worshiping? Who are you worshiping on a Sunday morning? Now that we've seen this first abomination, let us reveal the second abomination. Look at verses 7 through 13. In 7 through 13, Ezekiel is commanded to dig in the wall. The other three abominations are all going to be more or less out in the open. But this this abomination requires a little bit of digging. There's something significant about this. That means that there's something that's been hidden, something that's been disguised. So he is going to reveal a hidden sin. So what does Ezekiel find when he begins to dig? He finds a door. He finds an entrance that's been covered up. What this means is that at some point, somebody has, has covered up, has hidden this entrance. There is now a secret chamber, a secret room. There's a secret entrance somewhere else. And this door that used to be there has been blocked off. I remember as a child, I was going to a church that had bought a new building that had been owned by another congregation and been remodeled several times. And I remember going into that building and there were lots of doors and rooms and areas of the church that had been kind of changed around or doors that were locked. There was a secret staircase in the back of that church and I was never allowed to go up there. And my mind always wondered as a kid, what's up that staircase? What's, what's going on? There was a secret passage that I saw once, and I never got to go back in the secret passage because the deacons locked it off so the kids wouldn't play up there. But there was always that desire in my mind to know what's going on in all this, what's all these secret rooms in this, church, this old, old church building. And it always made my mind wonder. And, and I guess I'm imagining Ezekiel wondering the same thing. You know, he, he pulls back this dirt. This command, dig in the wall, seems kind of silly. But then he finds this door, and he's like, oh, there's something here. Is it going to be something good? Probably not. God just said, I'm looking for abominations. What horrible thing is going to be on the side of this door? So he opens the entrance and he goes in and it is a horror. What he sees is 70 of these elders worshiping God. They have censers in their hands. The walls are covered in strange beasts and creatures and images. He's found a secret cult that's been happening just down the street from the temple. And he's, he's walked into their, their clandestine gathering. And so he, you'll notice that he recognizes some of these men by name. He recognizes one of these men by name. If you remember at the beginning of the chapter, who is he eating with? He's eating with the elders. And now he's realized God has, God has pulled him out of the meeting and he's showing him these elders you're eating with who are pretending to be okay with God, pretending to be okay with God's prophet. This is what they're doing in secret. This is what they're doing in private. They are burning incense to false gods. They are engaging in cultic behavior. These men who say that they're godly, say that they're God's men, are not God's men after all. So God is exposing what these men are doing. I want to take a minute now and pause on verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. It says, and then verse 12 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? 
For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. There's a lot of implications to this passage, this, just this verse. The first is that God sees what these men are doing. Their secret door trick, it didn't work. God saw right through that wall, even before Ezekiel opened it up. God knew exactly what they were doing in their secret room. And he knows every man and every sin that they've committed. They're not fooling, they may be fooling everybody else, but they're not fooling God. Maybe they're fooling their wives, maybe they're fooling other men in the town, but God knows exactly what these men are doing in secret. The second thing is, you see the words that they're in the dark. They're trying to cover it up. They're trying to, to be clandestine, to be secretive about this. And, and God's light reveals and pierces the darkness. Third, note it says, each in his room. The implication here is that these men are not just gathering together to engage in this dark ritual, but they're taking this home, and they're doing this in their own homes as well. They are bringing sin and abominations into their own households. They are in their own rooms with their own images, conducting pagan rituals and, and worshiping false gods. Their sin is hidden, but it is very, very real. And finally, notice how their, their logic, their order is wrong. They twist the truth. They say, God has deserted us, therefore it's okay for us to sin. When it should be the other way around. They have sinned, therefore God's mercy and God has deserted them. God has withdrawn from them because of their sin. Their sin does not give them the right to act, act as if it's okay to sin. And this is a lie that the devil will often use. To say your circumstances justify your sin. You're tired. You've had a rough day. Your prayers haven't been answered. Therefore, it's okay to do X, Y, and Z. God hasn't given you what you want. Therefore, you can go seek it out in, in your own way. This is the same lie that we hear today. And this brings me to my second application. I, would, I will direct this one to the men especially, but it applies to women as well. But Ezekiel directs it at men, so I'll direct it at men as well. Men, what do you do alone? What do you do when you're alone in your room full of pictures? What do you look at on your phone, your laptop, when no one's around? What are you like when nobody's near? The second application is that God knows and punishes the secret idols of men. Notice how these men are worshiping every beast, everything they can possibly find. They're worshiping the creation as the creator. And I would urge you to consider then your idols. While I doubt you're worshiping drawings of mythical animals or drawings of animals, I, I, there, the, our idols in this day are no less offensive to God. We're still worshiping the creation. So your idols could be anything from your flesh, your sinful gratification, your own comfort, your own entertainment, your material possessions, your money, your reputation, your family, or, or maybe even something else. Men, I encourage you, dig in the wall of your own mind. Dig into your own metaphorical wall and ask yourself, where are my idols? Where are the things that I'm hiding even from myself? What am I in denial over? Dig until your hands grow sore, but dig until you find what it is that it is you are harboring in the dark places of your heart. And ask God's light to pierce your own darkness to find these things. If you need help, here, here's, a, here's an exercise that maybe can help you. When you go home today, I want you to go to, to your space. You know what I mean? The, your place. Maybe it's your bedroom, your study, your garage. The place where you are the most you. Go into that place. And now I want you to imagine for a minute that you've disappeared without a trace. And you're now a detective. 
And your job is to figure out what was the man who used to live in this space like? What books was he reading? What's, he, what's on his shelf? What's on his walls? What did he leave strewn on his desks? You know, what, what, what was he engaging with? And what, you know, what books are open and what books are dusty? And begin to do forensics on your own life and say, what does my life look like? If, if you died today, if you disappeared today, what would your room, your space tell the story of? What are, what are the pictures on your wall, literally in this case? What does the story say? And then, and then follow this story up. What is the story of your bank account? What is the story of your phone screen time? What is the story of, of your search history? What do all of these things tell? What, what, what kind of man did they paint you as? You know, we, we always tell ourselves what kind of man we think we are. But step back for a minute and ask yourself, the, the footprint that you're leaving in this world, what kind of man is that? Is that, a, is that the kind of man who is, who's honoring God, who's fighting against his sin, who's enjoying, yes, the creation of God, but who's understanding what is the creation and who is the creator? Are your priorities right? Or is there, there nothing but marks of self-indulgence and, and secret sins that maybe you're pretending aren't there? So I encourage you, consider your own life well. Do forensics on yourself. Be ruthless. We're called men to be ruthless with our sin. So be ruthless with yourself in fighting your sin. This is the second of the abominations, the abomination of men. We have two more abominations to go, though. So let us look at verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, we see what's probably the most confusing of the abominations. Women weeping for Tammuz. So what does that mean? Oh, we, we might, you probably don't know who Tammuz is, but Ezekiel's writers would know exactly what this is referencing, which is why it doesn't go into detail. There is a small hint in the very first book where it gives us the time of day. Tammuz is a Sumerian fertility god, part of their pan, the Sumerian pantheon. And what's happening here is one of the two feasts of Tammuz. So Tammuz was thought to be a, a, a pantheistic god, kind of like the Greeks or the Egyptians, if you're more familiar with their pantheons. But in Sumerian, in this, in this pagan culture, Tammuz would be worshipped at two festivals, as, as a festival of the grain. So the first festival was, a, was the planting season. This was marked by ritual. Uh, uh, this was marked by all kinds of rituals and food. And then it was also marked by ritual prostitution. So there would be prostitution at the first festival, and then the second festival, for the dying of the grain, for the cutting of the grain, there would be a weeping ceremony. So when it says they're weeping for Tammuz, they're not weeping because they're sad. They're not weeping to mourn something. They are ritually mourning, which means there's a large group of women who've all gathered in the same place, and they're throwing their hands up and waving, them, waving their arms in the air and weeping and wailing and screaming as a ritual worship of a Samaritan pagan deity. And, and they are, they're weeping not out of sorrow, but out of out a desire to gain attention. They're trying to impress each other with how well they can weep, how well they can scream and wail. So this is a ceremony where the women are trying to impress each other, and in doing so, impress this pagan deity. And saying, oh, we love this pagan deity so much, and because the grain is dying, we're going to scream out and cry out, and wave our arms in the air, and, and make a big scene. So imagine Ezekiel seeing this scene where all of these women have come together to weep and scream and wail and, and make a big show. And, and this, is, this is what God is now kind of putting before his eyes and saying, this too is an abomination. And in a, in a way, a greater abomination. I think one of the things to note here, one of the reasons this abomination I think is after the abomination of men as a greater abomination is because these women are here without their husbands. 
Where are their husbands? Their husbands are home smoking incense to these strange deities, and their wives have been left to their own devices. So what are these women now doing with their time? They're wailing and weeping and, and engaging with a cult of their own. They have their own cult that they've now been engaged with. And, and where are their husbands to say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We are not to engage with the cults of the Sumerians. And so these women have been poorly led and poorly trained by their husbands. And now they are gathering together to, to engage in this cultic behavior. If you've been part of our Genesis study uh, last year or our ongoing Sunday school uh, class on biblical manhood and womanhood, you may recognize this, we've talked about this several times, as the first sin in Genesis 3. God finds it abhorrent when men abandon their wives to sin. Women's sin isn't more sinful than the sins of men. Quite the opposite. The sins of these women reveal how poorly their husbands are leading them, how poorly their husbands are taking care of them. So the fact that these women are out in public weeping and wailing is not just a condemnation on the women, but it condemns the husbands as well for not caring for their wives. I want you to think about how absurd it is, this, this culture, that, that God's people are now divided into his cult and her cult. If you thought buying razors and his razors and her razors or his shampoo and her shampoo was arbitrary, well, here we have his cult and her cult. Here's how the men are worshiping. Here's how the women are worshiping. And they're, they're not talking to each other anymore. Satan was, Satan, if he can't destroy gender roles, if he can't make gender roles uh, completely muddled and confused, if you hold the gender roles, well, then Satan will say, fine, I'll play that game. And he'll, he's tailored now custom sins, custom false religions for the men and for the women. So they're holding to the gender roles, but now these gender roles have both fallen into their own individual sins and are being driven further and further away from each other. There are two applications then for this passage. First for fathers and husbands, and then for women. For husbands, for fathers, for those who have, who have women under their charge. Whether God has given you a wife or God has given you daughters, you have an obligation before God to know what your wife, your daughters are being influenced by. What are they reading? What are they watching? What are they listening to? Not to demean them or to look down on them, but to protect them. Husbands, be interested in the things your wife is interested in care about her enough to, to know what it is that she's engaging with. What is her TV shows teaching her and, and showing her all of the time? What music is she listening to? Who, is, who are her influences? And I encourage you, I want to be clear here. This doesn't mean that men are to sneak around and spy on their daughters, their children, or their wives. What this means is that husbands are to regularly engage their family in conversation. My children, what are you watching? What are you listening to? My wife, what is it that you're listening to and hearing? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the spiritual ramifications. Understanding that things that are targeting the husband may be different than things targeting the wife. So as you come together and engage in conversation, it, it's easier to see each other's sins and to see things and go, oh, well, the, the assumptions of, that TV of your TV show have some, some horrible implications and your wife can come alongside you and say, well, some of the stuff that you're engaging with has some hidden sin as well. And so you begin to have those conversations and help each other look for sins and temptations coming against each other. And so I would encourage you to engage with your spouse, engage with your children, regularly know what it is that they're spending their time doing. And for the women in this room, the, the women in this room, I want to warn you of this. Satan always has time to custom tailor sins to you and to your own unique weaknesses. He, he wants you to be busy. He wants you to be too tired. 
He doesn't want you to notice that he's custom making stuff just for you. Think with me for about this cult of Tammuz for a second and what it really is. These women, and, these women of Judah, their husbands were busy. Their husbands were conducting their own horrible things. And so, and so Satan brought a cult among them and, and made them an offer. He said, if you partake of the cult, you will have fertility, prosperity, the household you always dreamed of. And everything you want, if you will just engage in, in this, this feasting and ludity and, and prostitution, if you will just weep and wail and, make it, and get attention and make a scene, I will give you all the things that you desire, the household, the fertility, the blessings. And so Satan used this horrible cult to entice women in the land of Judah. And, and just as with Tammuz, I think sexuality and, and popularity are still being offered in exchange for sin. Think about the message these days to women. The first is the, the over-sexualization of women in our culture. Immodest clothes are being pushed as empowering towards women. My sisters, there's nothing godly or empowering about skin-tight clothing and plunging necklines. We are, we are not called to dress in immodest ways. Please have nothing to do with the immoral style choices of our culture. I'm a dad of, of three small girls. And even though they're still very tiny, there's already immodest clothing that's marketed towards them. And it disturbs me and it shocks me that our culture wants to put even the smallest of children in immoral, immodest clothing. Fight that culture. Every one of us must fight against that and call sin is sin. There's, there's nothing cute or fun about that. The, 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 the sexualization of women in our culture is abhorrent to us. That is something we have to fight against. The beauty of women is found in representing the bride of Christ, not in showing off their skin or their body. Another message that's being targeted so much at women these days is the need to be at the center of attention. The women of Judah, they came and they weeped and they wailed and they saw who could make the biggest fuss, the biggest shows. If they were alive today, you know every one of their phones would be out. They'd be recording that and posting it on every social media. Look at me weeping and wailing. Look at my friend weeping and wailing. Look at what we're doing. Look at this big show. How many followers can you get if you wail the loudest? And this, this just desire to be the center of attention consumed them. If you're looking for social media in the Old Testament, here it is, the cult of Tammuz, weeping and wailing and trying to get as many attention and followers and, and be there in the middle. My sisters, being quiet and gentle in spirit will never get you followers or likes or popularity, but it will help you to draw closer to God. So pursue the, the, the way of God. Don't and resist the urge of our society to be loud and to be always trying to be in the front and always trying to lead the charge. It, the, the offer, the enticement of, of popularity, of, of having all these material possessions, of being an influencer, it, it, it's all a lie. And I encourage you to fight against that lie and draw near to God. Ladies, I encourage you, find a godly older woman to help you think through the messaging that's aimed at you at a constant basis. You're constantly being targeted. So have other women in your lives that you can draw near and say, help me to think seriously about these things. Have, have friends, have older women who can come alongside you. If God has given you a godly husband, enlist his help. Bring your husband on board. Say, say my husband, help me to look at these clothes, these images, these, these messages being sent against me. Help me to think critically against these. Help me to resist these things. Not to fall for these, these cheap tricks that the devil throws at me. If you're single and looking for a husband, 
Don't settle for a man who doesn't have discernment. Find a man who's, who knows the Bible, who will help you remember things that are true. Your calling is to fight and resist the world. And, and you are called to use all the resources, the, resources, the church, your husband, whatever God has given you, to fight against sin. This is the third abomination, the abomination of women. We've seen the abominations of the king, the men, the women. Now let's see the final and worst one, the abomination of priests. This is verses 16 and 17. For the final and worst abomination, we see that the very priests of God are bowing down on the temple grounds and worshiping the sun. It says they literally turn their back on the temple. They turn their back on God and they worship the sun in the sky. They are engaging with one of the most blant, one of the most obvious, one of the most horrifying worship ceremonies you can imagine. You know, think about this. They're going to spend the day conducting the sacrifices and leading the people in religion, and they start their morning by worshiping the sun in the sky and turning their backs on God. And God sees this and said, this is abhorrent. Did you notice the way he describes them? Well, I, 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 I love this description. He says that they have a branch to their nose. What does that mean, a branch to their nose? Well, think about a, a, a branch of a scented tree, like a cinnamon tree. This is what he's saying, is you're taking a cinnamon tree, you're taking a branch, a good-smelling branch, and you're pressing it to your nose so you can't smell how bad you stink. Maybe you've met a college student, a high schooler, who just won't take a shower. You ever encountered one of those guys? They just need to take a shower. And every, every morning they, you know, spray themselves down with the body spray and they're back out there and it's like they're, they're deluded themselves into thinking, I, I don't smell that bad. I don't smell that bad. What God is saying here is that the Axe body spray of, the, of these priests, it's not hiding anything. They reek. They stink. They have convinced themselves they don't smell bad, but they smell horrible. They are an abomination now to him. They're, they're covering up their sins. They're pretending that what they're doing doesn't matter. The sins of the priests, the sins of their religious leaders, are leading the entire nation into violence. The attacks of the Assyrians are in part because the priests themselves are leading God's people away from God. And so God makes it very clear. Our application here is that God does not turn a blind eye to the sins of the leaders, to pastors, to churches, to denominations that promote sin. Any pastor or church or denomination in our own day that, that promotes sin, that, that holds the branch over sin and says, it's not that bad. We don't need to talk about this. We can pretend sin doesn't matter. To do that is to provoke God to anger. So I want to encourage you with this. Pray for myself. Pray for John. Pray for our church. Pray that John and I would not delude ourselves into thinking that struggling with indwelling sin is, is, is something to be taken lightly. We must always be fighting against our own sin. Pray that we would be quick to make war against anything that offends God in our own lives. Pray that we would be bold to preach the scriptures. And pray that we would keep watch over our own hearts. Pray for our church as well. And, and, pray, and work to create the culture that seeks to be as biblical as we can. You'll hear John and I pray every week from the pulpit for our church. We, we pray in private as well that God would build up our church spiritually. That God would protect our church our church is not just driven by numbers. We're not just trying to get people in the door. But we're trying to live our lives in a way that honors God. We're trying to, to build people up spiritually in maturity so that we can be in integrity before God, so that we're not harboring these secret abominations, these secret sins. 
So seek to encourage one another, to love one another. Seek to build each other up as we're called to throughout the Bible. And I encourage you to pray for our denomination and associations as well. You'll hear that in our, in our pastoral prayer every week as we, as we pray for the International Mission Board, as John prayed this morning, as, as we pray for the seminaries, as we pray for the Southern Baptist Convention. God has called churches to work together. We need other churches if we are to fulfill the Great Commission. If we're to reach the nations, we need a mission board. If we're to reach the nations, we're going to need other churches. If we're going to reach Texas, we're going to need other churches. If we're going to reach Dallas, we need other churches. We're called to walk alongside other churches and to love one another and seek to stir them up. So that's why every week we pray for other churches. And it is, it's, it's so discouraging. It's easy to look at the world and see denominations that no longer decry sin as sin and that have fallen to sinful messages or other congregations that have, have fallen into sin or maybe on the other side of the aisle where there's this smugness of, ah, we're better than everybody else. We don't need other denominations. We don't need other churches. We can just be independent and do our own thing. God has not called our church to be an independent church. We're not called to separate ourselves from everybody. We're called to walk together in love, recognizing that all of us are sinners. All of us need grace. All of us are called to walk alongside one another for the sake of the gospel. So I'd encourage you to pray for our denomination. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for other churches in this area. And know that God will do His work through His churches, not just through this church. And so these, these are the four abominations. The abomination of the king in, in separating the altar and perverting worship. The abomination of men as they, they worshipped the cults and their secret sin. The abomination of the women as they, they wailed for, for attention and for the, for the passions of this, this cultic false deity. And the abomination of the priests as they claimed to be God's men and yet were worshipping the sun and worshipping idols. And leading the people's hearts further and further away from God. I want to look now at verse 18 as we conclude here and, and look at what the consequences of the abominations are. Verse 18, therefore, God says, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. There is wrath coming. There is violence coming. There is a day coming where God's patience will run out. There will be a day where they will have to atone for their own sins. God will punish the sins and abominations. But notice that along with this punishment, he says, I will no longer hear. Now, obviously, God is everywhere, so he will be able to physically hear them. But God says, I will no longer regard. I will no longer hear their, oh, I'm sorry now. When the day of judgment comes, the time of repentance will have been ended. There will be no time to make a last-minute you know, prayer, prayer meeting after God has come. There will be no second chance. And so, as God has been patient with us, and he was patient for Judah, with years, God gave Judah generations to repent, years to repent. He called prophet after prophet, priest after priest, to preach the gospel and give them opportunity to repent. He's been patient and gracious with them. But in ignoring God and ignoring the message over and over again, they have now provoked God to wrath and heaped greater wrath upon themselves. This is true for us today. God's day of judgment is, is still coming. He's been patient with us and he's patient to this very day. He has not punished us right away for the sins that we've committed. You know, praise God that he, is, he has not punished us for what we have done. None of us would be here if we were punished for the sins of our past. And yet God has showed us great mercy in allowing us to come to him. But if you have not come to Jesus, 
and you were called to come. Why today is called today, and you were not promised tomorrow. We are called to throw our, ourselves before Jesus and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have committed these abominations, and only the death of Jesus on the cross can take my abominations away. Only the death of Jesus can remove these sins, can purge these sins, pay for these sins. Only the righteousness of Christ can cover me. And so we are called to trust in Christ alone, to put our lives in Jesus. And Jesus says, if we trust in him, and he will not forsake us, and that he will pay for our abominations. Remember when I defined abominations, I said only a, a, a radical change, only something, a, a major systemic change can remove the abominations so that we can draw near. Friends, Jesus is that radical change. He is the one who pays for and removes the abomination so that once again we can draw near to God. But there's a, the warning is still here, and it parallels Matthew 7, 21 through 23. This is where the people of God, these, these men who were supposed to be godly, just like the men in this passage, they say, Lord, 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 we were your people. Why, why are we turned back on Judgment Day? And God turns them away and says, Department from me, I never knew you. Why? Because their life did not match their words. And this is so important for us to recognize. The question on Judgment Day is not, did you walk an aisle? Did you verbally agree? Did you verbally assent? Yeah, okay, I believe there's a Jesus. I believe that there is a God. It's not, did you say the right thing at the right time? But does your life match what you believe? If you believe something, is there proof somewhere in your life that it's true? And this is such an important question. We have to be really careful here. Because then it can almost sound like workspace righteousness, but it's not. Works-based righteousness is, were you a good enough person for God? Whereas faith, the real question is, if you believed in Jesus, as you say you do, did it change anything about your life? Does your life reflect your beliefs? And so this is what we're called to do. We're called to look at our life and say, does my life show that God has changed me? This is what 1 John is so helpful in letting us see. Am I fighting sin? Am I pretending like I don't have sin? Am I saying I do not have sin? Or am I giving in to sin and not remorseful? Or am I really fighting against the sin that God has, has revealed with His light to me? When God's light shines into my life, when I dig into the wall and find sin, is my thought to make war against my sin, to struggle with my sin? Or am I being complacent? Am I playing games? Am I hiding my sin in the darkest rooms and filling it with smoke so that no one can see, and I blind myself to my own sin. I encourage you, look at your life and see that it matches your convictions. 2 Timothy 2, 3-7 puts it like this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he completes, a, a, competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What he's saying is, don't call yourself an athlete and then not run. Don't call yourself a soldier and not fight. Don't call yourself a farmer and not plant and water and harvest. We're not called just to speak, we're called to live. And that's why this sermon has had so many application points. It's hard, brothers and sisters. It's hard to self-introspect to seek out sin, to address the uncomfortable and awkward things in your own story, to look for ways that you've embarrassed and ashamed yourself and, and made yourself embarrassed before God. 
But friends, we're called to help our lives, to, to make our lives look as much like Christ as we can. We're called to cry out to Him. Cry out for the Holy Spirit to help us and enable us to do the things that we can't, to change the things that we can't in our own lives. And, and we're not called to be like the Pharisees who, who spoke a big game. We're called to trust in Jesus, the work of the Spirit, to rally around each other in the church so we may seek to be like Christ and be honest in our integrity of how we walk. I want to look at one more verse, though, before we leave. And that's in chapter 9 of Ezekiel. So look over one chapter. Ezekiel 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, speaking to an angel, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In this chapter, God sends forth the punishers, these angels who are going to bring the judgment upon Judah. But before he does that, he sends his angels and says, mark the men, the women who sigh and groan. Mark out those who are sighing and groaning, and they will be spared. Those who hate sin, those who can't stand it, sigh and groan. They're sighing at the world around them, the sin that they're seeing. They're saying, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm not going to go wail. I'm not going to go into a secret room. I see the sin around me and I hate it. And they groan at their own inward sin. They see their temptation in their own heart. They see their own failings and they say, I will not participate in this. And God says, those that hate sin, I will protect. They will not be destroyed. God, even in this time for Judah, says there is a people out there who sigh and groan over sin, and those are the ones I will protect. And I love this verbiage, sigh and groan. God's not saying, look for those who are, you know, carrying a sign and fighting to change the world and pushing for social reform. He's saying, look at those who just hate sin. They're just called to hate sin. They're not called to change the world. They're not called to overthrow Judah and rebuild a, a godly nation. They're called to hate sin. That's enough for God. God it's, it's easy for us to look around and, and see the mess that our country is in and to see ungodliness in our country and feel like we, unless we, we change the world, you know, how can God accept us? But God's not calling us to change the world. He's going to change the world. He's calling us to fight and hate sin. Yes, we're to groan and hate the sin that's out around us. There's an ever, an ever parade of sin, it seems. Every time I turn on the news or open my computer, there's more sin on display in the world around us and everything that's happening. But we're called to hate the sin in our own hearts first and foremost. Are you fighting temptation in your own life? And if you are, if you're struggling, you're groaning over your own sin, recognize that God delights in your groaning over your sin. You're struggling over sin, just as, just as we see in 1 John. If you hate your sin, God delights in that. He's glad that you're fighting. So, so keep fighting, keep groaning, keep struggling to put the sin to death. And here we see God encouraging us and God reminding us that He delights when His people fight sin. And just as God withdraws when sin is hidden, when sin is ignored, when sin is played with, so God promises to draw close to those who fight sin. If you're groaning, if you're struggling, if you're praying and, and doing everything you can to fight sin, know that God delights in that. And if you pray, He will draw near. He will send His Holy Spirit. He will fill you with the strength that you need to keep going. And so God is with us in our struggles. God sends His angels to mark out those men who are fighting so that they can keep fighting, so that they will be spared the day of judgment. In conclusion, if you take away anything from this sermon, I hope it's this. 
Focus your time and your effort on fighting the sin in your own life. The sin that will destroy your own soul if you leave it unaddressed. Seek to live in obedience to God, to God's will. Trust God to bring salvation. Judah's downfall was caused by an entire nation who assumed that they were okay with God, that God had abandoned them, that God didn't care, and that they could do whatever they wanted, and that they could harbor all kinds of sins below the surface behind the walls. And yet God saw each and every one of their abominations, and those were the abominations that led them to destruction. Please, do not assume that God's patience is God ignoring your sin or not knowing about your sin, or that God is okay with your sin. If God has not exposed your secret sin, that doesn't mean God's okay with it. That means He's patient in letting you notice it so that you can fight it. God is showing you mercy. Take advantage of that mercy. Dig in the wall, my friends. Dig in the wall. Look for secret sins hidden in your own life. Put to death everything that God calls evil, and He will draw near to you. Yes, our nation, our leaders, our celebrities, they're going to provide you an endless parade of sins to point and scold. But you're called not just to hate the sins around you, but the sins in your own heart most of all. It is not enough to put on a show of being a good person. We're called to confess our sins to one another. So we've been talking about these last few weeks. Draw near to one another and confess your sins. I am struggling with this brother. My sister, help me fight against them. We're called to use the resources God has given us to continually make war against the sin in our own heart. And if we do this, God promises that He in Him, we will find a happiness and a fulfillment in this world that comes only from walking in the light. Join with me in prayer. Father, we thank You that You are light, that Your Gospel is light, and that Your light shines into our darkest corners. God, I pray that You would reveal us to us today things in our own life that we're so ashamed of that we've forgotten about them. Help us to see our own faults and failings. Help us, Lord, to recognize where we have strayed. But Lord, I pray that we would not be obsessed with looking at our own sin. Help us to look to you, to cling to you. Help us to cling to the gospel, to take, take advantage of the means of the church, of our families, and fighting against these sins. Help us, Lord, to not grow weary, to finding our identity and our joy in you. Help us, Lord, to find our delight in you and in fighting our sins. In the blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.